All right, we are not, I'm starting us in the book of Acts chapter 3, but we're not going to be doing our continuing study through the book of Acts this morning. I just wanted to uh, focus our attention in a specific direction and tie it to one particular verse that we just recently studied in Acts chapter 3. We finished our study in Acts 3. Soon we'll be back uh, to that study and we'll be picking up in chapter 4. But what we saw was this was a circumstance in the chapter here where uh, the Lord has done a significant healing through the ministry of Peter and John, and he's healed a man who was lame from birth, and as a result, a huge crowd has gathered. They're in uh, the porch of Solomon, which is the outdoor portion, the courtyard portion of the temple of God in Jerusalem. And as the crowd is gathered, Peter speaks to them. And uh, there's just so much that he covers. We did a a total, I think, of some three studies on his proclamation that day. And what I want to focus our attention on this morning, again, we've already studied it, but I just, my attention has kind of remained here in this one verse and this one phrase in the verse, in chapter 3, verse 20. Let me read verses 19 and 20 as a pair, though. This is the, port, the portion in the, uh, the message where Peter begins to shift from proclamation to personal application for the crowd that's gathered. And he says in verse 19, Repent, therefore, and turn back. Meaning, clear implication for those who were listening to him their hearts were not fully right with the Lord and he was calling them to turn to the Lord repentance being a a one doing a a 180 uh, completely changing your heart perspective heart attitude heart direction and orientation repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and then this in verse 20 is what is kept my attention since our study three weeks ago, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter ties the repentance of the people that were listening to an event, or really not a single, a single moment's event, but more the potential for future events, future experiences in their relationship with the Lord. Repent, and if you do, it's, a, it's, a, it's the kind of declaration when he says repent, that their response is going to determine what their experience is going to be following that response. If you will repent, then God will do this for you. And he's not guessing. Peter's not saying, maybe God will do this if you repent, and maybe he won't. Possibly you'll be one of the lucky ones to have this experience, and you may not. But his implication is that God intends to, God wants to, God's, God's desire is to give to his people the experiences described at the beginning of verse 20, but is based upon their hearts being in right relationship with him. And so he says, repent 
so that, in verse 20, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And I define that during our study. It was not the main focus of our study at the time, three weeks ago, but I identified that as what has traditionally in, in Christianity come to be known as times of spiritual revival. The, the word picture that Peter uses literally could have been translated this way in verse 20, that breezes of refreshment may come from the presence of the Lord. And I think he's clearly referencing a most recent experience that he has had, and not just him alone, but 120 true followers of the Lord along with him, just a chapter earlier, just short time before this day, in the events of chapter 2. Uh, let's turn back for just a moment to chapter 2 and remind ourselves, at the beginning of the chapter, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The event that, that is described in chapter 2 and the experience that was fresh, no doubt fresh on Peter's heart and mind, was an experience of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon a group, a, a group at that moment of 120 true disciples that had been gathered and waiting on the Lord for 10 straight days up in the upper room in the city of Jerusalem. And the Lord met them in that place and poured out, not on the first day, not on the second, but on the 10th day of their waiting, he poured out his spirit upon them. And their experience was of a wind coming from heaven but that wind signified the presence and activity of the Holy Spirit. So then in chapter 3, in a, in a subsequent setting, a subsequent interaction with a group of people that were not walking with the Lord in the same way that the 120 were, he calls to them and he says, repent so that refreshing breezes may come from the presence of the Lord. And the idea of coming is that those breezes would be poured out upon their lives in a similar way, not an identical way, but a similar way to what they had experienced back in chapter 2. So anyway, I've been thinking about this, and it's not the, you know, my first awareness of what's being described in these chapters, but since our, our doing our study together, that particular portion in chapter 3, verse 20, has remained on my heart. And then I've been just thinking about the circumstances of the world and the society and the culture in which we live, the national spiritual condition, so to speak, of what surrounds us in our life in this world presently. And as uh, Jerry had mentioned in his communion exhortation, um, you know, this is just my experience, my testimony. I don't want to speak for you. But uh, in my years of walking in the Lord, I've been in this world for 67 years now, and I've been walking in the Lord since 1979, so some 43 years now. And in those 43 years of walking with the Lord, I've never seen the surrounding spiritual conditions in the culture and the society and the nation in which we live worse than I have seen recently. It doesn't mean 
It's never ever in history been worse than it is now. Things were pretty bad just before the flood in the days of Noah came where every thought and intention of every heart with the exception of Noah was described by the Lord himself as in the population of planet earth, only evil continually. Things were pretty bad then. And yet in my experience, I've never seen, I've never personally witnessed them or seen them worse. Now that's the society as a whole, problematically for the Lord's purposes and his agenda in this world and in history in the kingdom of God and in the representation of the Lord's name in the church of God. I've never seen the church worse than I've currently observed it to be. I've got in, in the overhead here, I, I think we should move on to the next one here. I've got, uh, let's go to the next one, please. I've got three examples just from the church world around us. And that is, uh, these are just, recent ones these are just things that that came to my the first two just came to my attention while i was preparing this message and the third one i've been aware of for some some period of time uh the church of england is going through a major re-evaluation at this point this is the national church of england and uh what they have chosen to do is embrace um, the LGB, I think I'm getting these initials correct, LGBTQIA plus community in terms of uh, what they're describing as an inclusive um, welcoming of that community within the life of the church. And what I'm, what, what's, there's something good about that and there's something horrifically bad about that in terms of the Lord's purposes for his church. What's good about including um, a community like this LGBTQIA plus, and you know, there's constantly new um, new letters being added to that identification list. But uh, what's what's good about that is that the church should always have open doors to anyone that is wanting to come to know the Lord, wanting to find out more about the Lord, and wanting to to um, discover what it means to be in right relationship with the Lord. We should never shut the door on anyone that has a heart to seek the Lord. But that's not what they're doing. What they're doing is they're saying, you can come and be part of our spiritual community without changing anything about how you are currently living. That how you're currently living is going to now be accepted and embraced by the Church of England from a from a top-down, agreed-upon, discussed, and debated, and prayed over, and then decided a conclusion that we are welcoming any and all lifestyles into the lifestyle of the church. And along with that, of course, they're, um, they are embracing, now the Church of England is embracing the concept of a gender-neutral God. Now, what they mean by that is simply... Um, you know, the Lord Jesus, this is just one example. The Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, as we studied in great detail a few years ago. And in teaching his disciples to pray, he taught them uh, at the very beginning of the, pr- the prayer, and he said to them, pray in this way, our Father. And what 
he did in using that specific introductory phrase to what we now call the Lord's Prayer is he linked a familiar gender identity of the world around us to God himself. And the Church of England is now wanting to divorce themselves from that. So that even, for instance, the Lord's Prayer would be, um, would be changed, would be modified, would be retranslated, so that we would not any longer pray our Father, but we would pray in some more specifically gender-neutral uh, address to God himself, or God itself, so to speak. Um, in this country, Andy Stanley, how many of you have heard of Andy Stanley? He's a mega church pastor, one of the largest churches in the nation. He, um, his, the church that he pastors is claiming 38,000 every Sunday morning, just slightly larger than us. Somewhere, somewhere back east, I think they're in the Carolinas somewhere. Um, Andy Stanley's got many spiritual problems uh, to work through, but one of the ones, his most recent ones, is he made this statement, and he meant it seriously, that uh, LGBTQIA plus Christians, uh, as if there could be such a thing, but uh, Christians who identify in those various lifestyles have more true faith than any believer who is not identified with that community. More true, real spiritual faith than those who are not identifying in that community. Third example I give, I'm giving is Joel Osteen. He's the pastor, of course, of the mega church down in Houston, number one selling Christian author, um, probably the most popular Christian television show in terms of um, broadcast of services and whatnot. Um, He refuses to say or to declare that Jesus is the only way of salvation, uh, meaning that he's essentially evacuated the gospel of any significance. um, And he's not denying Christ directly or outright, but he is denying that Christ is the one and only true savior and way of salvation. So the reason I gave those three examples is simply, you know, I, I want you to understand my concern currently is not just, wow, the world's getting worse and worse out there. It is. But um, the church or those who identify as church, those who identify as followers of the Lord or proclaim themselves to be are on the same um, downward Uh, spiraling trend as the world that surrounds us and in the light of all of that my concern going back to Acts chapter 3 let me read it one more time starting in verse 19 and 20 is this repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What's indicated there again is that the Lord desires to pour out refreshing breezes upon his people in this world. And the word that that kind of captures that experience is times of refreshing, meaning that the Lord intends to pour out 
these refreshing breeze experiences from heaven upon earth, upon his people, but more than one time. And so my perspective is, like Jerry had described in his communion exhortation this morning, is that the only thing that I can see that will possibly stop this progression of cultural and social and national spiritual deterioration and the same kind of deterioration going on in the church is if the Lord were to do such a thing for us. And not just for us within the four walls of this building that we're meeting in this morning, but for us, his true people, whoever truly belongs to him in this world at this present moment in history. Let me share two Old Testament passages that speak to this concern. First is in the book of Hosea. These are, of course, prophetic concerns. And for those who have studied the Old Testament prophets, uh, whether they're the major prophets or what we call theologically the minor prophets, minor not because their message is minor, but minor because, simply because the books are shorter. All of the prophets, major and minor, are essentially boiled down to one concern. And they have the same message. Different setting, different specifics. But the concern is God's people drifting away from the Lord. And the call in each case was for the Lord's people to return to him. And in that return, to receive from the Lord this experience of what we call revival. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. The idea in verse 1 is a call to return to the Lord, but that call is in the context of an experience that the people of God were struggling with. And their experience was they were experiencing having been torn And they were experienced having been struck down. And the mystery behind their experience, one that the people were were really having difficulty grasping, is that their experience in life of being torn and being struck down was caused by the Lord himself. And he had torn them as his people and he had struck them down not simply because he was frustrated with them, angry with them and he wanted to just take it out on them but because he knew they had reached such a point in their drift from him that the only thing that would fully call their heart's attention back to him was a very difficult personal experience in this world. One that would make them once again fully aware of how dependent they were upon God and his grace and mercy. Now another passage along the same lines, this in the book of Habakkuk. I always have trouble finding Habakkuk. 
So give me a minute. It's after Nahum and just before Zechariah and Haggai. Habakkuk chapter 3. And I'll read just a single verse here, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Again, the context here, and I I just don't have time to fully develop what they were going through, that stirred by the Spirit of God, Habakkuk the prophet, to pray for the people of God. But the, the essence of what was going on was the work of the Lord was in danger, and the danger was severe because the Lord's response to what he was observing among his people was he was directing wrath their way. And it was coming. And as it was coming, they would be overwhelmed by it. And before it hit and before they were overwhelmed, the Lord sent a prophet, caused him to pray, and in his prayer, he cried out, Lord, in your wrath, remember your mercy. I am concerned for your work, and I am asking that you revive your work in the midst of their lives and their circumstances and their struggles and their need that only you can meet and only you can resolve. Now, this is the experience then of what we call, biblically speaking, revival. And it's become known by that terminology throughout the the course of what we call church history. Let me give you a, a definition, a working definition of the experience of revival. This is not my own. This is from one of my favorite uh, teachers from an earlier time in church history. Many of you are familiar with him. You've heard me mention him more than once. Martin Lloyd-Jones defined revival in this way, and it's the simplest but best definition I can come up with. He referred to revival as days of heaven upon earth. Simply that, days of heaven upon earth. And he wrote an entire book. Um, I brought it with me this morning, a book on revival. I've had this book for many, many years. I read it years ago and have been just recently rereading some portions of it. I want to read you, if I can, just a, an excerpt from this book that kind of helps you to understand what it is that I'm trying uh, imperfectly to describe. This is, this is Lloyd-Jones' description. And he's talking about what revival looks like when it happens, when times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord are poured out upon his people. This now becomes for them the one thing that absorbs them. If they meet anyone, they talk about it at once. Everybody is talking about it. It's the main topic of conversation. It's the thing that absorbs all their interest. They, the people of God that have been so affected in this way, they desire to be together now and to talk about these things so that they get together and they hold meetings. They meet every night. They begin to talk about these things. They begin to praise God and sing hymns to his glory. Then they begin to pray. And there they are, hour after hour, night after night, longing to finish work so that they might get together with other people who have experienced this movement of the Spirit of God. 
And that, of course, in turn leads them to have a great concern about others who are outside and who do not know these things. I'm giving you a synopsis of what you read in the books. What he means is he was a, a, what I would call a student of the history of revivals. And he's describing what he's read about similar kinds of movements of the Lord throughout the course of church history. They begin to get a concern for the members of their own family, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, children, brothers, sisters who do not know that they are outside. They tell them about it. They feel they must. There's a constraint that drives them. They talk about it to people, to friends, to everybody. They begin to pray for them. Prayer is always a great feature of every revival. Great prayer meetings, intercession, hour after hour. They pray for these people by name and they plead and they will not let God go as it were. They are intent on this with a strange urgency. Then after a while, hearing all this and seeing the change in those whom they have known for so long, these others who are outside begin to join the meetings and to say, what is this? So they come in and they go through the same experience and so it happens and thousands upon thousands are converted. Indeed, the whole neighborhood seems to be full of the Holy Spirit. He seems to be everywhere. People are not only converted in meetings, some are converted as they're walking to the meetings before they even get there. Some are converted at work in the coal mine on top of the mountain. Some are awakened in the middle of night. They went to bed feeling as usual, but they're awakened with an awful sense of sin and they have to get up and pray, plead with God to have mercy. Nobody has spoken to them at that moment. It's the Spirit of God that's acting. He's dominating the whole area. He's filling the lives of all the people. This is what happens in revival, and thus you get this curious, strange mixture, as it were, of great conviction of sin, great joy, a great sense of the terror of the Lord, and great thanksgiving and praise all at once. Always in a revival, there is what somebody once called a divine disorder, Some are groaning and agonizing under conviction, others praising God for the great salvation. And all this leads to crowded and prolonged meetings. Time seems to be forgotten. People seem to, for a moment, have entered into eternity. A meeting may start at 6.30 in the morning. It may not end until daybreak the next morning with nobody aware of the passing of the hours. They did not have to provide coffee once or twice halfway through. When the Holy Ghost organizes things, time and the body and the needs of the flesh fade. A revival then really means days of heaven upon earth. Let me give you one of the greatest definitions ever written of what is true of a town when there is such a revival or visitation of the Spirit of God. It was written by the great and saintly Jonathan Edwards about the little town of Northampton in Massachusetts, 1735. Now this is an account of what actually happened. The work soon made a glorious alteration in the town, so that in the spring and summer following, it seemed, that is to say, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It was never so full of love, nor so full of joy, and yet so full of distress, as it were. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy in families on account of the salvation being brought to them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn, Husbands over their wives, wives over their husbands. The doings of God were then seen in his sanctuary. God's day was a delight. His tabernacles were amiable. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached. 
some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the soul of their neighbors. Jonathan Edwards again uh, describing the events uh, in 1735 in just one area of New England. Now, there have been some significant works. The one that I just read about uh, describing one such work. I'm going to just give you four from from modern history, and I'm saying modern going back to the 1500s, uh, some significant amount of time since the day of Pentecost, of course. In the 1500s, there was a great revival. It was a revival that changed the history of modern Christianity, changed it much for the better, and we call that time of revival still to this day the Reformation of the Church. It took place primarily in Europe, but eventually spread throughout wherever Christianity uh, found a presence. And it was primarily under the leadership, though not caused by the leadership directly, but primarily under the leadership of two individuals, in particular Martin Luther and John Calvin. Luther being more the spearhead that had begun the whole thing, and Calvin being the, uh, the shepherd that the Lord brought in to ensure that this revival movement developed along uh, biblically faithful doctrinal lines. Then you can fast forward a couple of hundred years and in, in the circumstances of Great Britain and what was then the American colonies, and this is uh, where Jonathan Edwards comes in, there was the first of three great events that happened um, periodically throughout this portion of history. One is this first one was came to be known later. They weren't calling it this at the time, but later came to be identified as the first great awakening in Britain and the American colonies. And it was primarily through the influence of the preaching ministry of George Whitfield, John Wesley, and then as a shepherd, again, the Lord brought in someone to ensure that it developed along biblically faithful doctrinal lines, Jonathan Edwards, uh, perhaps the greatest teacher in early American, shepherd teacher in early American church history. That started in 1730 and lasted for some significant amount of time. We're talking about uh, a 10-year period in which uh, both Britain and this entire portion of the what's now the northeast United States was affected Uh, It wasn't just one specific area, one specific meaning, but an entire region in two different parts of the world were affected simultaneously. Then, uh, fast-forwarding about 50 years later, there was a revisitation of a similar kind of thing, and it became known as the Second Great Awakening. This was primarily in the USA in the year 1820. It began under the leadership of two men, Adoniram Judson and Asahel Nettleton. And again, uh, an entire region was affected, like think in terms of like all of Southern California, that, that kind of thing, which then spread and had an effect on the entire newly formed nation of the United States. And then fast forwarding another approximately almost uh, 60 years, or uh, 40 years later, excuse me, 
there was an event that came to be known as the Third Great Awakening. This was also simultaneously taking place in the United States and in Great Britain. Under the shepherding influence and leadership of two individuals here in the United States, D.L. Moody, and in Great Britain under a very familiar name, Charles Spurgeon. Now, none of these events, why would there be a second great awakening if, if the first had accomplished everything God wanted to accomplish? Why would there be a third if the first two didn't accomplish what God had accomplished fully? It's because the Lord knows how his people are. Um, even when the Lord does move in a significant way like he did in these, what came to be known as great awakenings, um, over time, the experiences fade. Um, let me just give you one example. Just, and this is not a revival example. I just want to give you an example of, of even redeemed human nature at work. How many of you have ever remembered me sharing a heart-to-heart, firm, and heartfelt word of exhortation to this church about us showing up ready to worship at 9 a.m. in the morning? How many of you have ever remembered me sharing such a word of exhortation? Okay, so when I have, and that's happened, I think at least twice, that I've shared that over the last several years. Um, my experience is, prior to sharing that kind of word of exhortation, that there's kind of a low ebb that goes on here at 9 a.m. And then somewhere between the beginning and the end of the first song that we sing, first song of worship, uh, we're all present and we're all focused and we're all worshiping. But Prior to me sharing those words of exhortation, my experience has been, you know, I look around at nine o'clock and it's like, where is everybody? We're ready to start. Caleb or, or Tim is starting the worship and it seems like the congregation is, is choosing to take the week off. And then by the end of the first song, because my attention is focused in the front here, I look around for the greeting time and suddenly everybody's here. And so I've shared these words of exhortation. And then my experience for the few weeks following those exhortations is, what do you think it's like? Yeah, everybody's more attentive. Everybody taking to heart the word of exhortation. I appreciate that you do. And then, you know, we're all here at nine o'clock and we're ready to worship. And there's just a, I don't know, just a little bit richer sense of worship when we all start ready to worship the Lord in a similar unified focused kind of way but why would i ever give a second exhortation if the first one was fully effective because human nature even redeemed human nature over time things fade and it's not that long ago that i was thinking maybe i'm due to give a third one because of you know what happened to that renewed sense of concern and zeal and attention and focus uh, since the last exhortation. So that's not a revival circumstance, but even in a revival circumstance, these things don't last forever when the Lord pours out such times of refreshing. And so periodically, as God's people become aware of their need and begin to cry out, and the Lord's stirring their hearts even in that, periodically the Lord will respond and answer from heaven with pouring out times of refreshing revival upon his people. Now, Jerry mentioned the circumstance of what's going on currently in the, uh, the Christian College in Kentucky, Asbury College. Uh, this, um, this devotional meeting 
without any pre-planning, uh, without any intention for it to, to move this direction, um, this one-hour devotional meeting has so far been going unending for 12 days now. And what I mean by unending, even throughout the night, 24 hours a day. It doesn't mean everybody is awake 24 hours a day. Uh, people are leaving to go get some rest and get some food and come back and, and uh, participate. There's someone that is staying and, and uh, worshiping the Lord and praying in an unending way there at this college uh, for the last 12 days so far. And the early reports are it's the experience has now begun to spread to other Christian colleges. Um, there are three or four others that are having a similar kind of experience right now. This may be the beginning of a significant, what will develop into a significant revival. I'm certainly open to that. I'm certainly hopeful that that may be the case. I believe this nation needs a reviving experience, a refreshing breeze poured out from the Lord's presence upon us as his people. We need it as much as anyone else, but there are others that need it maybe even more than we need it. And um, so I'm hopeful. But again, like Jerry, I'm not sure. It's just in the early stages. One of the, you know, I've, I've read the history of the, the Great Awakenings, the first, second, third, and, and the, the, the Reformation that I described. And um, they're mixed. The experiences and the history of those events are mixed, meaning there's some true stuff that looking back, this, was, this must have been the, the work of the Lord pouring out of refreshing uh, presence and, and influence of the Spirit of God upon his people. But then other things spring up along with it, you know, fleshly expressions, clearly unbiblical expressions of people trying to uh, like take what they've experienced and, and take it further or make something of it that the Lord is not making. So, you know, I'm not making any assumptions about what's going on in Kentucky. I am praying for them and for that circumstance. And if it is the Lord, I will say this, you're not going to be able to stop it. If it's the Lord, any more than what, what happened on the day of Pentecost could have been stopped by any human being. But if it's not of him, you, you certainly can't manufacture this kind of stuff. There has been in the history of of Christianity through these same time periods, development of, of movements that came to know, be known not as revival, but revivalism. And revivalism is basically the, the human effort to try to recreate such experiences. Like, okay, we're going to hold a revival meeting on such and such a night, and when you show up, there will be a revival that night. You can't plan what the Lord does in that way. If it's truly from him, it's something that comes in his timing, his power, his way for his purposes. And um, all we have to do in such circumstances is to respond accordingly. And the, the, the appropriate response is repentance and faith and then obedience to the Lord and honoring him in the midst of such a circumstance. Now, um, I had planned, but I think what I'm going to do for the sake of our time is I'm going to um, probably do this next Sunday morning. I want to take us through two examples from Scripture of real revivals that took place in the history of God's Old Covenant people. One in the days of Josiah. If you want to read ahead, I'll be in the book of Second Kings in regards to the circumstances of Josiah, which are described in 
mostly chapter 22 and 23 of Second Kings. So I'm going to focus some attention there. And then another revival that took place in the days of Nehemiah. And uh, this is described in chapters 8 and 9 of the book of Nehemiah. I want to talk about revival from the perspective of the, the ones that we can be 100% certain this was a true revival. And then when there is a true revival, what are the marks? What should we look for? What should we expect? And how can we know with certainty that it's the Lord that's at work in such a circumstance if the Lord ever does bless us in a similar kind of way in our present circumstances? All right, so let me jump past those two examples and we'll save those, Lord willing, for next Sunday's study. For today, application, three things. One, recognize, please, and I don't think this is going to be asking a lot of you. It's, it's hard to miss this. You'd have to almost intentionally close your eyes to miss this. As you look around in the culture in which we live, recognize the decaying culture that we live in and the great need in that culture, but also recognize the deterioration that's taking place even within the circles of what many claim to be Christianity, but obviously is not Christianity in the way that the Lord intends it to be lived and experienced. Second, pray. As Jerry urged us and encouraged us and even led us this morning during our communion time, pray for the Lord to intervene. Pray for the Lord to bless us with true revival. And I've given you a, a passage to link to that, and so let's, let's, let's go back and look at that together, and we'll end our study here this morning. The book of Psalms. Psalm 85. And then the third one I'll just save for next Sunday study, which is remember that the Lord always links his word to our revival. But I'll save the the connection between those two things till next week. Let's read from Psalm 85, and I want to read the entire psalm. This will end our study time this morning. This is a psalm, which of course is a song. It's an inspired song. It's a worship song. But it's functioning here as an intercessory prayer song. And it's a prayer for revival. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah, meaning stop for a moment and think about that. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. The question we're meant to stop and ask at that point is, how could the Lord ever be indignant with his own people And the answer to that is whenever his own people are not living in a manner that's fully pleasing to him, fully obedient to him. Put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love. That's your covenant love, your committed love covenant love that loves us through thick and thin. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what what God the Lord will speak. 
for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. These are the qualities that we see as the fruit of a true reviving breeze that's poured out from heaven upon earth, upon the people of God on earth, so that they experience, as Lloyd-Jones described, days of heaven on earth. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. As the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase, righteousness will go before him and make his footstep away. All of it's super important, but verse six, the heart of the psalm, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Father, uh, this study certainly can't create what it describes, but it can stir us, Lord, to look to you and to cry out and to ask you the most important question we can ask you as, as those who belong to you in the midst of a deteriorating culture and even in the midst of a deteriorating church culture, will you not revive us as your people again that we may fully rejoice in you and that you may fully rejoice in us. We ask that you would work in us, you would work upon us, and that you would pour out all that we need from you, not just for us, but for all of your people in this present world, in this present moment of history. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless everyone. Hope you can join us at the Spajari.